that we are a chosen generation. We've been born anew by your Spirit. Lord, that we are a royal priesthood. We are building bridges to other people. Bridges that will link them to you. What an honor. What a privilege. Lord, we're a holy nation. We have a home in heaven. We're all citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, we're your own special people. You've put your love in our hearts. You've called us to be holy and set apart. Lord, help us as individuals and as your church to be the people, Lord, you desire us to be. Oh, Lord, we love you. We want to learn more from you. We ask that you speak to us tonight by your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some names that really do fit. Such as the shop, the maternity shop, in Alameda, California. It sells maternity clothes. And this shop has a name. It's called Fashion After Passion. What an appropriate name. Or what about the Indian fast food restaurant in New York City? It goes by the name Curry in a Hurry. Another very appropriate name. But the name Peter, oh man, the name Peter, that's one that just doesn't fit. The word Petros means rock. And yet the man Peter, he was more like shifting sand. Peter was impulsive. He was inconsistent. He was often insensitive. He was not a very rock-like person. And yet Jesus named Peter, not after what he was at the time, But he named him for what he would become once he had been transformed by the Savior, by the Spirit. You see, two events transform shifty Simon into powerhouse Pete. First, he received power on the day of Pentecost. And second, he received perspective at the cross of Calvary. At Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Peter and transformed him into a bold witness for Jesus Christ. At the cross, he saw Jesus suffer. And he realized at last that God does work through suffering, and through persecution, and through hardship. Peter became a champion of hope, even in the midst of difficult and stressful circumstances. In fact, this becomes the theme of his letter, Hope in the Midst of Hardship. In chapter 5 and in verse 13, Peter offers a greeting from Babylon. It could be that he was writing from the literal city of Babylon, but it's more likely that he was referring to the spiritual Babylon, the capital city of Rome, the headquarters of pagan belief and false worship. It was sin city of the day. I believe Peter penned his letter while he was a prisoner in Rome, awaiting execution by Caesar Nero. Peter wrote, with death looming on the horizon, and yet his eyes were fixed just beyond the horizon to the glories of his home in heaven. It becomes apparent from this letter that if Paul was the apostle of faith and John was the apostle of love, then Peter was the apostle of hope. Peter became a rock when he looked beyond the temporal world that we live in and he anchored his hope in eternity. Verse 1 says that Peter is writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. In the book of Acts, we learn that the church was born into a climate of hostility and persecution. 
From the outset, the church of Jerusalem was hassled and attacked, and many of the believers scattered and dispersed into other parts of the world. Peter is writing to these refugees of persecution. And Peter, too, is writing to us. For we, too, are dispersed pilgrims. This world is not our home. Our habitat is heaven. We're just pilgrims passing through this life. It reminds me of the mom who was on board a ship in the middle of the Atlantic. An angry storm arose and almost sunk the boat. But the woman throughout the storm exuded an unusual calm and strength and serenity. And when the ordeal was over, the captain asked her the secret of her composure. And she replied, I've got two daughters. One lives in New York and the other lives in heaven. I knew I'd see one of my girls in just a few hours and it didn't really matter which one. We're all just pilgrims on a journey. Heaven is our ultimate home. Peter addresses these believers in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us. If you know Jesus, you have been begotten again, or literally born again. It's from this verse we get the term. He has begotten us again. As human beings, we are a trichotomy. We are made up of body, soul, and spirit. Our problem, though, is that we run on two of those three cylinders. We run on body and soul, which is our mind and our emotions, but our spirit is dead. Thus, we're running on two of three cylinders. This is why we sputter. This is why our lives so often misfire. Our body is alive and aware. Sometimes our minds and emotions are alive and aware. It's our spirit, though, that is dead. And yet when Jesus enters a life, He infuses our dead spirit with His Holy Spirit, with the spark of His life. He creates new life in us. Remember the old saying, born once, die twice. But born twice, you only die once. We have been begotten again through God's abundant mercy. And we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. The Italian poet Dante, in his Divine Comedy, hangs a foreboding inscription over death's door. It reads, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Death is the great spoiler. It separates lovers and creates orphans. It slams the door on opportunity and it causes potential to vanish. Death chokes out hope. But our Lord Jesus has overcome death. He lives forever. When Jesus exited the grave, He resurrected hope for everyone scheduled for death. Through His triumph on the cross, all His followers, all His followers have the hope of sharing in His resurrected life. Peter says that we've been born again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Earthly treasures lose their luster and value, whereas God's blessings are permanent and priceless. There is an inheritance under lock and key with your name on it in heaven. And verse 5 says that you yourself are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, my kids are always asking me, especially when they were little, Daddy, will you hold this for me? 
It might be their money or their jacket or their baseball glove or when we're at church, their Bible. Daddy, will you hold this for me? An item they don't want to lose, they entrust to their dead. You see, you are an item that God doesn't want to lose. So much so that he promises to keep you, to hold on to you. Believe in Jesus and God keeps you in his pocket. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter explains why God allows us to be persecuted. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, it is the fiery trial that purifies our faith. You see, God is like a goldsmith. He heats up the gold and he causes the impurities to rise to the surface. And this is why God turns up the heat of hardship in our lives. Hey, if everything was easy, if it was just always a breeze following Jesus Christ, where would we ever be tested? You know, where would we ever be able to show the genuineness of our commitment? But no, he uses persecution to purify our faith, to expose our pride and our self-sufficiency. Adversity keeps us humble and it reminds us just how much we need the Lord at all times. Peter continues in verse 8, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It was Helen Keller who said, The best and most beautiful things in life cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. And this is true of spiritual realities. Peter says that we have not seen Jesus, but we love Him. And by faith we sense His presence and walk in the awareness of His presence. Jesus has filled our hearts with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And verse 9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The New Testament speaks of salvation in different phases. When you embrace Jesus as Lord, you are saved from the penalty of sin. But as we grow in Christ, we are saved from the power of sin. And one day, when we enter the glories of heaven, we'll be saved from this wicked world and the predicament of sin. But it's progressive. At each stage of salvation, we are saved by grace through faith. And this is why it's essential for us to continue in our faith. You see, faith is not a one-time proposition. Faith is a mindset that we need to always be cultivating and growing and developing. And the salvation of our souls, as Peter puts it, that we have received in Jesus is the same salvation that was foretold by the prophets. And that even intrigues the angels. Verse 12 speaks of the gospel which angels desire to look into. I'm sure that for the last 2,000 years, the angels have been preoccupied. They have been looking into, they have been probing and pondering and trying to understand the depth of God's love for these little mud daubers called people. These little beings made of clay. Why does God love them so? And I am sure the angels, like Mr. Spock, you know, the emotionless Vulcan, you know, they have been trying to fathom the divine emotion called love. God's messengers, the angels, make it their pastime 
to try and grasp why God would reach so low to save rebellious humans. They desire to look into the kindness of God. And you know what? I think that we would grow in grace if we adopted the same pursuit. If our passion was to look into the grace and mercy of God. Verses 13 through 21 tell us that we need to get serious about following Jesus. Verse 13 says, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get a grip on your thought life. Verse 14, be as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust. Lay the former lust aside. Grow up. Verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. Live a life that is reserved For Jesus Christ. And in verse 17, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Respect God. Reverence Him. Live in awe of your Savior. And here's why we need to get serious about following Jesus. We weren't redeemed with earthly treasure. Hey, you're not some baseball player whose contract was purchased for a few measly million No, you're somebody special. You're far more special than that. Chapter 1 verse 19 says that you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Your contract was bought with blood. Hey, we have been purchased not with precious metals, but with spotless blood. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. If that does not give your life value, nothing will. And we've been born again, verse 23, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. You know, it's interesting. From the moment we're born, we begin to die. We are born of corruptible seed. Scientists and researchers have grown normal human cells and tissue cultures. And they've watched those cells reproduce for generations and then suddenly begin to degenerate and die. It's as if the cell had been pre-programmed to die, as if death were written into our genetic code. It's as if human seeds or cells, they possess, it's as if they possess a built-in time clock, which causes them to shut down at a predetermined point in time. Surprise! That's what the Bible tells us has happened. That sin is in our blood. We inherited it from Adam. It's in our genetic code. Sin and death now rule in the human race. Human seed is corruptible. It deteriorates and it degenerates. Physically, you were born to die. But spiritually, you were born again to live forever. For the new birth results not from corruptible seed, but from incorruptible seed. Through the word of God, Peter says, which lives and abides forever. Spiritual life occurs in the human heart when the word of God fertilizes a heart of repentance. And since the word of God abides forever, the life that it produces is a forever life, an eternal life. Verses 24 and 25 put it boldly. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Like cut roses, a week after you buy them. I buy my wife roses probably once every two or three weeks, I guess. Or so it seems. 
But you know, you bring those flowers home and she sets them on the middle of the kitchen table and all. And you know, three or four days later, they're shriveled up. They look like little prunes sitting there. And you think, 25 bucks for that? Boy, how quickly, how quickly the flower falls away. But you know, the Word of God is always in full bloom. The Word of God lives forever. Chapter 2 begins by encouraging those who are believers to be as newborn babes and to desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. I love how a little baby roots at feeding time. Its little mouth, you know, starts to shrivel up, starts to... Starts reaching out for that nipple, you know, and it creates that sucking motion and it starts eagerly and aggressively searching for that source of nourishment. Nothing is more important to that little baby when it's feeding time than satisfying its hunger. And this is the diligence that you and I need to be showing. Let's root for God's word. Let's hunger and eagerly and aggressively seek that source of nourishment that God has provided for us. Verse 4 of chapter 2 Jesus refers, Jesus is referred to as a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. There was a legend associated with Solomon's temple that during its construction, the, the uh, cornerstone was quarried first. But when it arrived on the site, the builders didn't recognize the importance and so they tossed the cornerstone aside. It wasn't until the building was nearly complete and they needed the cornerstone that they realized their mistake and they went and retrieved the forsaken stone. This is how the builders of Judaism, this is how they treated Jesus. At his first coming, they didn't realize that he was the chief cornerstone, that he was the foundation for God's house. And thus they rejected him. But one day they'll realize their mistake. Israel will repent of her sin. And they'll receive Jesus as God's chosen. Jesus is a living stone, we're told. But so are we. Verse 5 says, you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Now the Jerusalem temple stood in Jerusalem. But the New Testament temple is a spiritual house made of living stones. The church, you and me, we are being fitted together as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Guys, the power of Jesus has sobered us. Some of you have gone from being stoned to becoming stones. Isn't that glorious? The Jewish temple had limestone walls, but Christ's temple has live stone walls. Each of us has a role to play in God's church. Don't be off the wall. Find your place on the wall. Be a part of the house that Jesus is building. Verse 5 also calls us a holy priesthood. And our job as a priest's job is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Old Testament sacrifices were bulls and goats. But the New Testament sacrifices are spiritual offerings of love and praise and devotion and acts of kindness and giving of our time and money to the Lord. Verse 9 says that we are a chosen generation. Why don't we read it together? You ready? We are a chosen generation. I will start over. You ready? You ready? We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Isn't that incredible? 
that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're God's people. And rather than blend in, we've been called to stick out. We've been called to live out the values of heaven right here on earth. Since we're a special people, let's live in a way that honors God. That includes abstaining from selfish and sensual gratification. And it also includes submitting to the laws of the land. Verse 17 says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And don't forget, Peter was living in the day of the notorious king Nero. Hey, if a Christian can honor a Nero, then he can honor a Bill Clinton. Or a George Bush. You see, even when you can't respect the person, you can respect the position. Verse 18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Even the harsh master. And then in verse 19, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. You know, it's not uncommon for a world run by Satan to give a child of God a raw deal. When it happens, rejoice. Take heart. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom. But notice what verse 20 here adds. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, I know Christians who go out and act like a jerk. And they receive the ridicule of the world. And then they claim to be suffering for Jesus' sake. You're not suffering for Jesus' sake. You're suffering because you're just obnoxious. You're a jerk. That's why you're suffering. Hey, rejoice if you're suffering for Jesus, but repent if you're being a jerk. And when we're persecuted for God... Jesus is the example of how we should respond. Chapter 2, verse 22. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Understand, Jesus was a shock absorber. He absorbed the blows of this world and retaliated in love. You know, our whole world is good at swapping insult for insult. Here's what happens. You get slapped at work. So you come home and you slap the wife and kids. Not literally, but, you know, your attitude with your words. And then what do they do? Then they go out into the neighborhood and they slap the other kids in the neighborhood. And the whole world is just plain slap happy. That's how it works. Hatred passes from one person to the next person. Until, until, and this is the way it should be, until the Christian gets slapped. For we've been called to imitate Jesus. And when he was slapped, he didn't slap back. No, he absorbed that blow. And he responded to that hate with love. This is how God wants us to respond. He wants us to be like Jesus. He wants us to be shock absorbers so that when we get slapped, it stops there. Love pours out from us. Weak people are the folks who have to retaliate. Don't forget that. It takes real strength to absorb a blow and transform its impact into the opposite reaction. 
Jesus wants us to learn to retaliate in love. And verse 24 tells us that Jesus died for our sin, that we might die to our sin. On Calvary's cross, Jesus put an end to sin. He paid its penalty and he conquered its power. And now that I'm in Christ, he wants me to see myself as pure and holy. My spirit is no longer stained with sin. In the deepest part of me, I'm alive to God. And as I believe this truth, a desire for righteousness rises up within me. And I begin to live a holy life. This is what verse 24 teaches us. Chapter 3 continues to teach how we as God's own special people should live our lives. And Peter begins chapter 3 by addressing women who are wives. He provides our wives with three instructions or instruction in three areas. He deals with their boundaries. He deals with a wife's behavior. And he deals with a wife's beauty. Verse 1, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Well, God bless you. Why don't we just stop there and go on home now? No. But he does say, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. You see, God's plan for the home calls for an ordered equality. Both partners are of equal value, certainly, but they're different in roles. God has appointed that in the home and in the church, the man is to lead and the woman is to follow. It's all a picture of Christ and his church. The word submissive means to arrange around. A wife can certainly have a life of her own, but she's the one who should arrange her life around her husband, not vice versa. A wife should live a full and a happy life, but her boundaries are her husband. It was Ruth Graham who once wrote, The best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. Wives need to be submissive to their husbands. That, we're told, even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. If you have a spouse, whether you are a man or a woman, if you have a spouse who doesn't know the Lord, the way to win them to Jesus is not by nagging or meddling. It's by modeling. Let your behavior testify to the change that Jesus has made in your life. That's how to reach them. That's how to get to their heart. In 1805, a missionary from the Boston Missionary Society preached to the Indians in upstate New York. And after his message, Chief Red Jacket told him, We will wait a while and see what effect your preaching has on your own people. For if we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less inclined to cheat Indians, then we will consider again what you have said. Ladies, this might be what Chief Stubbornheart, that man you're married to, this might be what... He needs to see before he starts listening. When he sees the change that Christianity has made in your life, then perhaps he'll pay attention to what it can do for him. Peter has spoken about boundaries. Now he defines real beauty in verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit 
which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, let me caution against taking Peter's instructions to an extreme. There are Christians who believe it's a sin for a woman to style her hair or to wear jewelry or to wear fashionable clothes. For for some women, it's a sin not to. But that's not really what Peter's saying here. Ladies can look nice, certainly. They can dress mod, if modest. Just as long as they don't stress the outward attractiveness over the inward beauty. Ladies, here's a good test. Do you spend more time in the mirror than you do in the Word of God? That's a good test. The beauty of the heart is what's pleasing to God. In verse 6, Peter points to Sarah as an example. She submitted to her husband Abraham, even to the point we're told of calling him Lord. Ladies, don't worry. I don't think God requires you to call your husband Lord. But he does want you to treat him as the head of the house, the leader of the litter. Guys, if little green Martians landed in your backyard and they said to the kids, hey, take us to your leader, would they go to mom or dad? (laughs) There was little doubt that in Abraham's tent, the buck stopped with the buck. But it was not because Abraham always deserved that leadership. There were often times when he didn't. It was because Sarah understood the importance and the power of a submissive wife. And she was determined to be obedient to God. Now Peter comes to the husbands. And he provides us three commands for how we need to treat our wives. Are you listening, husbands? You listening? Dwell with your wife, understand your wife, and honor your wife. Are you doing that? Are you dwelling with your wife? Are you understanding your wife? Are you honoring your wife? Verse 7 says, husbands, likewise, dwell with them. Well, I dwell with my wife. Come home every night, man. I live there. I sleep next to her. I got that one down. But understand. Your home, fellas, is more than a hotel you check into at night. Dwelling with your wife is not just sleeping there, not just residing there, not just spending eight hours, you know, in the evening there. Dwelling with your wife means that you're involved in the inner workings of the family, that you're a part of what's going on, that you're engaged in the thoughts and the routine and the activities of the family, that you, the two of you are working together as a team. Are you dwelling with your wife? But also, we need to dwell with understanding. Do you understand your wife? Hey, get to know your wife. I've read that most couples with children converse with each other just 37 minutes per week. Per week. We need to do better. It's been said, every husband needs to know what makes his wife tick, what tickles her, and what ticks her off. (laughs) <laughs> and chapter 3, verse 7 says, We should honor our wives. Respect your wife. 
Treat her special around the house. Brag on her in public. Compliment her on the job she's doing with the kids. Never forget, treat your wife like a thoroughbred and she'll never be a nag. As Peter says, husbands should honor their wives as to the weaker vessel. Women are certainly not weaker than men in terms of mental capacity. (laughs) My wife's a lot smarter than I am. But physically and emotionally, men do tend to be more, or women tend to be more gentle, more sensitive than men. You see, women are weaker than men as a crystal goblet is weaker than a plastic coffee mug. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? A crystal goblet is weaker than a plastic coffee mug. The mug is heavier. The mug is more durable. It's easier to knock around. But the finery and the delicateness of the crystal makes it far more valuable than the coffee mug, doesn't it? Husband, your wife has a gentleness and a tenderness that you lack. And you need to honor her for her sensitivity. One year I went with Zach's sixth grade class down to St. Simon's Island on a science trip. And I learned something that, that was really intriguing to me. When a female china back crab molts and sheds her shell, it takes several days for a new shell to harden. And so for those few days, it leaves the crab vulnerable. And yet for those few days, the male crab covers her with his body. She literally attaches herself to his underbelly. And he carries her until she can once again protect herself. Men, there are going to be times when your wife's going to get a little crabby. She's going to become vulnerable. And that's when you need to cover her and carry her. And treat her as being heirs together of the grace of life. Your wife is not just your wife. She's God's girl. And therefore you need to treat her not just as a fellow servant, but as a sister in Christ. And for a very good reason, that your prayers may not be hindered. Have you ever tried to pray after you've been in a fight with your wife? The only prayer that seems to... (laughs) The only prayer at that point that seems to get beyond the ceiling is a prayer of confession and repentance. I'll never forget, several years ago, we were going through a thing where seemed like every Saturday, Kathy and I do fine all week long until we got to Saturday night. Before I was supposed to get up and deliver God's word the next morning, we get in a fight on Saturday night. And I have no doubt it was Satan's tactic. He, he was trying to hinder our prayers. And so we've solved all that now. We, we just don't see each other on Saturday night. LAUGHTER But if you want to keep the line open between you and God, love your wife. In chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You remember, Peter was the man who took the sword and chopped off the guy's ear. But now he's changed his tune. He's now learned how to fight evil with good, with blessing. He says in verse 10, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips 
from speaking deceit. In other words, think before you talk. Did you know that once a word leaves your mouth, you never get it back? Once it gets past those lips, you can't grab it and pull it back. Think before you talk. Here's a little acrostic to help you. Think. T-H-I-N-K. T. Ask yourself, is this true? If it's not true, let it die right there. H. Is this helpful? If it's not true and if it's not helpful, don't repeat it. I. Does it inspire or encourage? N. Is this necessary? And K. Is this kind? Think. If what you're about to say is not true and helpful and inspiring and necessary and kind, then keep it to yourself. Verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, know what you believe, know why you believe it. Be able and willing to give a reason for the hope we have in Jesus. And notice the hope in these verses that Peter provides for those who are being persecuted. Verse 13. Who is he who will, he, who is he who will harm you? In other words, no one's going to harm you if you live for God. God's going to protect you. Verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, he says. Verse 16. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Which leads to chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. If you're persecuted, you're in good company. Jesus also suffered on the cross to bring us to God. And Peter tells us in verse 19, where Jesus spent those three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection, we're told by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Remember, Noah worked on the ark and warned the people for 120 years, and only seven people believed him. His wife, his three sons, and their wives. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that Jesus, when he died, that he descended into Hades, not to hellfire per se, but to Abraham's bosom, to the place of the believing dead. And there Jesus preached the wonders of God's grace. He told them about his redemptive work on the cross. And to those who had believed while on earth, believed in God's promise, his sermon was a validation that he had been God's promised sacrifice. But to the disobedient spirits, those who had rejected God's promise while on earth, in both Noah's day and throughout Old Testament times, it was a validation that their own punishment was just. Certainly the flood of Noah is of tremendous historical and geological relevance, but it's also relevant typologically. For in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Peter explains that the flood was to Noah what the Spirit's cleansing is to the believer. The flood, you see, purged the earth and provided Noah a new life. And in Christ, we are cleansed by the Holy Spirit. We too are given spiritual life. 
Note too, though, Peter isn't talking about a literal washing or water baptism. For he speaks of our spiritual baptism at conversion. Lest we misconstrue what he says and think that somehow baptism saves us. He adds a parenthesis. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. In other words, it takes more than baptism to cleanse you. It takes the Holy Spirit to cleanse a dirty conscience. Chapter 4 begins with more encouragement for those who are being persecuted. He says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, physical pain does have some spiritual effects. Persecution can purify our motives. It can crystallize our commitment. In verse 4, Peter speaks of the person who will think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. Have you had a few people like that? Who thought it strange that you weren't running with them anymore? These were the people who used to be your friends. But now that you've turned from a sinful lifestyle, now they mock you. Oh, she's no fun anymore. Oh, who wants to hang around him anymore? He's not cool. You know, hey, let's, let's move on. Forget them. Today, your former friends snicker at your faith, but don't be deceived. The joke one day is going to be on them. Verse 5 tells us, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is the one who gets the last laugh. You follow God. God will protect you. That, that's where the action is. Verse 7 declares, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And verse 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Above all things, have love. We had a kid on our baseball team in high school who was a bumbling, stumbling Outfielder. You know, he couldn't catch a baseball if you'd given him a bushel basket. He was definitely a defensive liability. But he was in the lineup because this kid could hit. I mean, he could crush the baseball. In fact, he could hit, the fact that he could hit covered a multitude of errors. And I'll let you in on a little secret. If you want to be in God's lineup every year, every day, year in and year out, learn to love as Jesus loves. For it doesn't matter if you aren't the most skilled person. It doesn't matter if you make your share of mistakes. If you can love like Jesus loves, you're going to play on God's team. God is going to find a position for you. The Holy Spirit always packs his lineup with heavy hitting lovers. Love covers a multitude of sins. And Peter continues, be hospitable. And in verse 10, use your spiritual gift. In fact, I think there is a spiritual gift of hospitality. It's a supernatural ability to make people feel at home. And I think many have been led to Jesus through this gift. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't act surprised when you get persecuted. If this wicked world nailed Jesus to a tree, do you expect them to roll out the red carpet for his followers? Come on. Verse 13, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed... You may also be glad with exceeding joy. Share in Christ's momentary sufferings and one day you'll share in his eternal glory. 
Chapter 4, verse 17 is a sober warning. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. You know, I do believe that the biggest obstacle in the world today that keeps people from Jesus Christ is the hypocrisy and the selfishness they see in the church. You know, we can't draw people out of the darkness if we're asleep in the light. God's shaking does need to begin with us at the house of God. Chapter 5 begins with a word to church leaders. Verse 1, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow, fellow elder. Notice how Peter classifies himself. He calls himself a fellow elder. Notice he doesn't call himself the Pope. He doesn't even call himself the chief elder. He just calls himself a fellow elder. I'm a brother. And he says to his peers in ministry, verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Good shepherds tend and mend. They feed and lead. A shepherd is constantly vigilant. He looks out for his vulnerable flock. But not by compulsion, but willingly, he says. An elder should never be made to serve. He should want to serve. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. An elder or a pastor should never be pushy or manipulative. He should never throw his weight around or have to pull rank. Rather, the leaders of the church should lead by example. And when the chief shepherd appears, he says, you will receive the crown of glory. That does not fade away. Human leaders are under shepherds, but Jesus is the chief shepherd. And he promises a crown to those who serve him faithfully. Verse 5 tells us that the younger members of the church should submit to the older members, and everyone should be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's why we're told in verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. You be humble. God exalts in His time. And casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Isn't that beautiful? As the old saying goes, Turn your cares into prayers. As a friend told me once, Always turn your cares over to God before you go to bed. He's going to be up all night anyway. (laughs) Chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I've been told that the roaring lion is not the one you really worry about. He's just a decoy. When little Bambi comes strolling down the path, The roaring lion jumps out and he snarls and he growls and he makes all kinds of fierce noises. But you see, all the old lion can do is just roar. He's toothless. He's been declawed. He's been defanged. He's as harmless as a kitty cat. But he still remembers how to look menacing. And he can strike fear into the heart of little Bambi so that the deer spins around and flees off in the opposite direction right into the jaws of of the young lions that are hiding in the bushes waiting for the kill. Satan is a roaring lion. He's a toothless lion. Jesus has de-toothed and de-clawed Satan 
by the power of Jesus, he is now as harmless as a kitty cat. The only way Satan can defeat you is through fear and intimidation. If you don't stand strong, if you don't put on the armor of God, if you don't trust in the might of Jesus Christ, if you turn and tuck tail and flee in the opposite direction, you'll end up running right into trouble. This is why we need to resist him, Peter says. Steadfast in the faith. Instead of running, resist. Don't back down. Trust the Lord. Plead the blood. Call on Jesus' name. Take a strong stand and Satan will be forced to flee. James 4 verse 7 tells us, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When you're confronted by evil, put up a resistance and Satan will have to flee. And don't think you're alone in this struggle with evil. Peter adds in verse 9, Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Peter closes his letter with some personal remarks and what I call a fanfare of faith. In verses 10 and 11, But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And there we have Peter's first epistle.